0: Good morning, almost afternoon to all of you. Hope you're doing well and having a great day and a great week. And uh, we're looking forward just to continue on. We started um, Philippians a couple weeks ago. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've just really been enjoying our time together here in this wonderful, excellent book here that just uh, feeds us so much and encourages us. As Paul is seeking to do, we started this, um, like I say, a couple weeks ago and we saw how the beginning of the chapter, Paul was looking to really just share that thanks and gratitude for the believers at Philippi. Paul has such a a deep relationship with the people there in in Philippi where this letter that's being written is being written with such a, a heart of joy and gratitude. The whole theme of the book here is that of joy. And so Paul is just expressing this heart towards the people there in Philippi. As he says in verse three, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. How many people can you say that about here today? Every time I think about them, I thank you God for them. Yeah, okay, some of you are being dishonest with me and saying, yeah, no, I'm just kidding. No, I know some of you can do that. But there's times where every remembrance of people, we think about them, there's not always you know, good and it's sometimes there's some things like, Lord, why are they doing that? Can't you help them with that, God? Why is it so fresh? But Paul said, every remembrance, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you." And then verse 4, "...always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you all with joy." Paul had such a joy for the believers in Philippi, and he had a special relationship with them as he traveled there to Macedonia. In Philippi as you saw this church start with these very odd people, Lydia, the the demon-possessed girl that, that got delivered, the, the Roman guard in prison there in Philippi. Paul saw this church come together and he just saw such a wonderful work where they were people that were filled with love and gratitude and they're looking to minister to Paul and care for him. And so Paul is right and saying, man, every time I just thank the Lord or, or uh, I just think about you, I thank my God for you, I'm praying for you. And then now in verse nine where we pick it up, we're beginning to see this prayer unfolding. And we begin to see what Paul is exactly praying for. Look at what he says there in verse nine. And this I pray, that your love may bound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So notice this here. This wonderful prayer. If ever you've wondered how to pray for somebody, this is one of those great biblical prayers that you can grab a hold of and say, "I need to pray for this person." And you might be going, "I don't know what to pray for exactly." Right here, launch yourself into Philippians one, verse nine. There's great prayer in Ephesians. There's great prayer in Colossians as well. But right here, this is something you can look at and go, "This is something I can pray for somebody." No matter where they're at, what they're going through. Some of you might be wondering, "How can I most..." best pray for Pastor Brent. He seems like he just got it all together and he doesn't really need any prayer. But there's a prayer right here you can pray for and say, yeah, this will, this will hit me, this will, this will help, this will be encouraging. Paul says, first of all, notice this, he's not praying for God to bless them materially, or for God to bless them physically, he's not praying for God to, you know, remove any difficulties. He's simply saying, "Lord, I want you to bless them spiritually. I want you to do a work in the inner person of that of that person. It's right from the very heart and core of who they are. That what they are living out now is going to be different. This is what Paul's prayers for there to be a spiritual work taking place. And he prays three things essentially. He prays primarily for their love to increase, verse 9, for discernment in verse 10, and then again, for them to be filled with the fruits of righteousness, verse 11. These are essentially the three things that we're really kind of narrowing in on in this prayer here. So Paul prays first that their love may abound still more and more. And that doesn't mean that they were kind of fading in their love, or they were kind of drifting away, that they were getting a little bit heartless, and un- that's not the case. Like I said, the Philippians there had a real sweet relationship with Paul. They were caring for, him, they were loving, they were desiring to see the gospel go out. It wasn't so much that they were lacking love, but Paul says, we can never have <laughs> enough love. We can never have too much love, wouldn't you agree? That that love, he says, I want that love to be just overflowing, for it to be like a gusher that's just still abounding more and more. This is what Paul is praying. I know for myself, Lord, let love just continue to increase. Let it bounce. I I, I never can hit that point where I'm able to say, you know, I think I've really capped off that love thing pretty good. I think I've kind of reached it. I think I'm kind of there. I'm pretty full. I don't know if there's really any more that I could do. No, there's always room where I want that love to just be overflowing, for it to continually be pouring in and overflowing in me. Where's your love meter at today? Evaluate that. Maybe that's gotten a little bit low. Is it overflowing? Is it trickling out a little or is it sitting at that all time low? As Christians, our love should be overflowing because we're in relationship by a God who is defined by love. Bible says God is love, 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God because why God is love. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable statement for, for John to make there. He who does not love doesn't even know God. Because if you're in a relationship with God, he's defined by, he's characterized, his very nature is out of love. And if you're in a relationship with him, then you ought to be loving, overflowing, still abounding more and more in love, just as the very one whom we're living for and serving is a God of love. And just as we've been seeing how our joy is not based on circumstances around us by things going well, so too our love is not based on an emotion. See, biblically, godly love is a determined, committed, willful act of selflessness. That's what love is ultimately defined by. We think oftentimes as love or the opposite of love as being hatred or anger. We think, that's not very loving, they're, they're pretty angry, or they kinda hate, that's not very, we think of that. but the opposite of love is self. I think biblically you, you'd make a strong case for that because biblically love is all about surrender, sacrifice, it's giving, and it's giving unconditionally. It's not based on what somebody else is gonna do for you or what you're gonna get in return. It's saying, I'm gonna love because I'm choosing to, I'm deciding, I'm making a willful act of my selflessness to love. In fact, um, on Wednesday, if you weren't with us on Wednesday in our midweek service, we went through one of the great chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I I encourage you to listen to it. um, Because in Genesis 22, we see a wonderful picture. And in fact, The first use of the word love in the Bible is found in Genesis 22. That's the first time we see the word love in Genesis 22. And there's that principle of first mention where you begin to have to see, okay, here's the first use of it. How is that used elsewhere? And the first use of it usually determines the pattern for how it's used elsewhere. How is it used in Genesis 22? God says, Abraham, I want you to take now your son, your only son, whom you love. And what was Abraham called to do? Sacrifice Isaac. I want you to give your son. And you see this modeled or pictured for us a greater love that would be seen in God the Father giving his son for the sake of the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham having to sacrifice, having to yield everything, having to give. His son, of course, you know the story God spared, spared Isaac there. And there's a wonderful picture of the work that Jesus came to do for us, found right there in Genesis 22, the Gospel in Genesis. 10. Have a listen to that on our website if you haven't yet, but that's the first mention of love, and it's what we see now, what we're called to do, to be unconditionally giving of ourselves, to have a selfless, willful act. That's what love is. It's not based on emotion not based on what others are doing for you. As Christians, one of the greatest distinctions that should be identifying us as different than the world is love. That's the thing that gets set up for us as believers, that they will know you by your what, love. They'll know you by your love. And so if we're living in Christ and for Christ, that should be a real distinction and Paul prays for them. Oh, I, I just want your love to be abounding yet more and more. And this love is to be rooted, it says there in verse nine, that it would be more and more in knowledge and discernment. So it's rooted in this knowledge and discernment. Whoever coined that phrase, love is blind. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a practical, you know, you know when people are in love, right? They're not seeing things very clearly. We get that, love. But Christian love should not be blind. It should be with the eyes wide open based on knowledge and discernment, proving those things around you. Love is to be based on understanding and clarity. This knowledge that we have, which love is to be rooted in, comes from the Word of God, based on the Word of God. See, studying the Word of God as we do on Sundays and Wednesdays in our life groups, wherever, whenever Bible studies throughout the week, we study through the Word of God, not to come across as being more academic than others, trying to sound very scholarly. Well, did you know in the Greek what that word really means? Uh, you're probably not really understanding that very well. And we wanna, that's not the point of having Bible study. The point of Bible study is so that we might go through the Word but more so that the Word of God might go through us and that we might begin to know more the God of this Word. We, this is a means to an end where we grow in relationship with God and we know Jesus more. And as we know him and we know his love for us, then we begin to grow in greater love for him and for others. So we pray this love would be connected to a knowledge of God and his word. If we're seeing things clearly through him, then our love will truly abound. Now sometimes people throw out that you just need to be more loving card. You know, when you are maybe exposing something or correcting something, and they'll come across and be like, you're just so judging, just stop judging me. You need to be more loving. And there'll be those that'll throw that out, but understand something here too, that love is to be discerning. In other words, and and that word is, is sort of defined as judging. See, love doesn't just say yes to all things. Love exercises sound judgment that again is based on the word of God. Hebrews five thirteen to 14 says as much for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he is a babe but solid food belongs to those who are of full age that is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So you're, you're discerning the word of God or through the word of God And you're able to rightly divide things now as the Word of God does. See, sadly, many churches have shipwrecked themselves because they've not properly discerned or judged that which is good and evil. In in, in other words, what I mean is that there are some Christians that just wanna walk in love and say, oh, well, you know what? We don't wanna really deal with that. We don't really wanna talk about sin. That's not too loving. So we're just gonna let that go. And what happens is love begins to triumph over truth. And you can't have one without the other. Love and truth must go hand in hand. So Paul says, speak the truth in love. But there are those that say, well, I don't, I don't wanna be you know, judging or, or discerning in these things. I just wanna be loving. I just want everybody to feel good. But then we overlook things, we, we excuse things, we ignore things. And we do so to those people's detriment. And so love comes alongside and says, because I love you, I wanna help you, I wanna encourage you, I wanna wanna share something that I think is going to impede your walk with the Lord, that's gonna ultimately hurt you. And I speak that in love. That's what love does here. Love must always go with truth. James Boyce said this, the Christian life must be motivated and informed by love. Without love, we are only clanging symbols. But this is never intended to be a wishy-washy, undefined, sentimental love. It's the love of Christ, hence it must be love governed by biblical principles and exercised with judgment. Verse 10 goes along those same lines when he says in verse 10 that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ see when you walk in this love which is grounded in that knowledge and discernment you suddenly begin to have that you know that understand you, you begin to understand more fully the things that are beneficial and profitable for you as a believer you begin to realize oh that's actually gonna be helpful for me and you begin to see that's actually not gonna gonna be good I'm not gonna approve that I'm not gonna be okay with that that's not good I want to prove that which is excellent that which is of the Lord of of God and his word. And that's where that love is based in knowledge and discernment. And then you begin to approve those things that are excellent, that are helpful, that are encouraging, that you might be, as Paul says here, sincere and without offense. Now that word sincere, that's a great word. It means, ultimately, there's only two cases of this word sincere in the Bible, we we have translation, you know, sincere English word used many times, but two times this Greek word is used and it means to be examined by the sun's light, to be examined or proved by the sun's light. Now, in this day, you'd have an artist, let's say they're creating a nice statue out of marble and they're chiseling away, they're doing this work and they're spending hours, days, weeks on this thing. And they could be chiseling away and then all of a sudden like one kind of bad hit suddenly this thing could crack. Or they could be working on the nose. Let's say they're doing a little bust. of something. They're working on the nose and they're trying to get that nostril just rightly defined, you know? And suddenly it's chipping away and all of a sudden, boom! Nose just pops right off. Man! And then you're like going, all these, this work I've invested in this thing ruined. But what they began to do, what artists began to discover in this day days that you could take some of the wax or the, the, the marble powder and mix it with wax and to form that solution, they could put back on and basically restore, they could fill in the cracks. Or they could, you know, make another nose and sort of put that on. And they could sell that piece of art that it wouldn't all be lost. But yet, when people would buy that work of art and they'd take it home, back here in the Middle East, it gets very hot in the day. They put that on the patio, so as the sun is exposed and that, that nose begins to droop or those cracks begin to be seen for what they are, all the, all the imperfections suddenly begin to shine out as the sun comes down on it. That's this idea here. So what, what these artists would begin to do to sell their stuff is they'd begin to sell it with a sign that said in Latin, sine sera. Sine sera meaning without wax. And meaning that you've got the real deal here. You've got uh, a, a piece of art here that is pure, that's genuine, that's not been corrupted in any way. And this is the term that Paul uses for being sincere. Prove the things that are excellent, that you might be sincere, that you might not be fake, that there might not be things in you that are not right and true, so that you might live that life that is pure and flawless, without wax. Basically the idea is like not being hypocritical. See, don't, don't say you're one thing around one group of people and then live opposite that around a different group of people. It shows that you're not the real deal shows that you're not being genuine. When the heat is on, are you melting away because you're not complete in Christ, having a true heart filled or abounding with his love? Hypocrisy does so much damage to the witness of the church. I pray, like Paul is praying that you might be sincere and be found without offense till the day of Christ. Now we talked about that day of Christ because he mentions it again at the end of verse six. We talked about that last week, right? Great, great word there, and that day of Christ speaks of when we will be with Christ, when we will see Him face to face. For some of us, that's gonna happen at the rapture. When Jesus comes back to gather His bride, the church, and bring them home to heaven before the tribulation period starts. For some, that will happen at your death, when you see Christ face to face, when you move on into glory. And I believe that day is coming very soon not, sorry, not your death, uh, not, yeah, not you dying, The, the rapture part, that's what I believe is coming very soon. I believe the Lord is coming soon. And so the idea is this, let us not be wasting our lives, let us not be living lives that are not being true and genuine and sincere and without offense. Now, listen, that word offense, you look at that and you go, how am I ever gonna do that? I'm like, Offensive? Like, you know, every hour of the day. Like, how am I going to be without offense? Listen, the idea of being without offense does not mean not being without sin. Because we all fall short. We recognize that. We understand that. But the person that lives without offense is the one that owns up to his faults, confesses them, and seeks forgiveness from Jesus and others who they might have wronged. They know there's nothing left hidden or covered up. They're not taking that wax solution and trying to cover things up and say, I don't really wanna deal with this, I'm just gonna put on some mask and try to act like everything's fine. Without offense means you are open, you've laid everything bare, you've dealt with those things. It may not mean you're perfect, but we're not gonna be perfect until the day of Christ. That's what Paul says in verse six. He says there that being confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We're not gonna be perfect until we see Christ, because when we see him, then we shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. But until then, we say, Lord, I don't want there to be anything insincere. I don't want there to be anything offensive. I don't want to be trying to cover up things in my life. I want all things to be exposed, to be dealt with, to be brought before you, Jesus, that people might know, man, what how I'm living right now is how I live 24-7. I'm not putting on a show. I'm not putting on a front. I'm not putting on a mask when I come to church and outside during the week. I'm living as a different person. No, I'm the real deal. How I live at church is how I live through the week and I do what I say, and more so, I do what the Word of God says to do. That's what I wanna follow here. That's living sincere and without offense. And then, Paul says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This fruit is the fruit which living righteously produces in our lives. Now, we don't try and manufacture that fruit to be seen as, right again, that's hypocritical, where we try to put on this front, like, okay, I want the fruit of righteousness to be seen, so I'm just gonna uh, really will that into being. I'm gonna put it, I'm gonna try to really manufacture, just make it look like I'm very righteous. See, this doesn't come in a phony way, in a fake way by trying to manipulate or, or you know, will this into being. This fruit is the natural byproduct of living righteously, and living righteously can only be accomplished as we are connected to the righteous one, Jesus Christ, as we remain in him. That's as much as what Jesus says in John 15, verse four to five, abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, he says, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Say that with me, I can do nothing without Christ. All right, make sure you understand that. You can't do anything, you need Jesus, you need to be connected to him. Bearing fruit is not something we do, bearing fruit is something that comes very naturally by abiding in Jesus and being connected to him. Lawrence of Arabia was in Paris after World War I. He was there with some of his Arab friends and he took some time to show them the sights of the city, the Louvre, the Arc de Triomphe, Napoleon's tomb, and this other thing that I butchered big time in the other two services, I'm not even gonna say it now, another, uh, another big place there in Paris. <laughs> Anybody wanna say it for me? Uh, pardon me? Thank you, that's the one. Man, I said it like just way terribly. The first service, and then I tried better the second service, still butchered it. And then I had somebody coaching me during, in between the second, here's how you say it. And I was in a workshop with them for like half an hour, and I still can't get it. And I'm, I'm oh, but that's it. Can you say it again? Oh, the said, Chance de Lisée. de, okay, yeah, all right, okay, you get the idea. All right, so they're there, they're seeing all the sites, right? Lawrence of of Arabia, you've forgotten that. Let's just move on, okay. But no, Lawrence of Arabia is in Paris with his Arab friends. They're seeing all the sights, it's wonderful. They found little interest in those things, however. The thing that really interested them was the faucet in the bathtub of their hotel room. See, they spent much time there turning it on, turning it off, they thought it was wonderful. All they had to do was turn the handle and they could get all the water they wanted. Sometime later, when they were ready to leave Paris and return to the east, Lawrence found them in the bathroom trying to detach the faucet. You see, they said, it's very dry in Arabia. What we need are faucets. If we have them, we'll have all the water we want. (laughs) Lawrence had to explain the effectiveness of the faucets, that it did not lie in themselves, but in the the immense water system, uh, the immense system of waterworks to which they were attached. He had to point out that behind this lay the rain and the snowfall from the Alps running down through all the pipes that would eventually make its way through the faucet. See, many people are living lives that are as dry as the deserts of Arabia. They have the faucets, but there's no connection to the pipeline. And they need to come to God through Christ. Other people might be parched, but they're parched for another reason. There's impurities there that are choking out that line. See, your happiness, your joy in Christ lies in you being connected to the source, to Jesus Christ. You need to come to Christ for cleansing, but as you come to Christ, you see that He makes you fruitful. It's all connected to Him. So this is what Paul is praying for. Oh, that your love may abound still more and more, that you might be discerning, that you might be filled with all the fruits of righteousness. So after seeing Paul's plea in prayer, we look at Paul's perspective now in persecution. Paul's plea in prayer is nice, that's something we like to camp out on, but Paul's, Perspective and persecution is another side of the story. Look at verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now, it's quite likely that the Philippians were maybe a little bit troubled or upset over Paul being in prison. They're seeing this unfolding, thinking, how can that be? Maybe they were looking at that situation that happened some 10 years earlier when Paul had visited them in Philippi, and he was thrown into prison there. And yet God miraculously, that midnight hours, they're worshiping, send an earthquake, open the prison doors, and they were free. And perhaps these Philippians are looking at Paul's situation right now, going, God, where are you? Why aren't you freeing him like you did back in Philippi? Are you there? God, why can't you do this? Why aren't you working? How many times have we asked those same questions? God, I know you can deliver me out of this situation, but why aren't you? Are you there? Are you really helping me? But look at how Paul responds to these believers here and to their potential concerns. Because he says there in verse 12, listen, all this stuff, that I've gone through, my circumstances, all of this has happened actually for the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul says there in verse 12, it's for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's under house arrest there in Rome. He has a Roman soldier chained to him 24 hours a day. They do six hour shifts. So every six hours a new soldier's coming in and being chained to Paul. But Paul's not looking at this as a drag. He's like a kid in a candy store. He's like, man, I want nothing more than to take the gospel up, but God, you're bringing the people right to me now. And they can't go anywhere, they're chained to me. I've got a captive audience for six hours. You know how much damage I can do in six hours? And this is Paul going, thank you, Lord. He's like living the dream right now. He's not worried about it. He's not bummed out about being preached. He's like, thank you, Lord, because all this is happening for the furtherance of the gospel, and he's relaying this to the church in Philippi saying, take heart, be encouraged, because God's at work in all this. I can just see Paul sitting in the quiet of the night, hey, psst, buddy, have I told you about Isaiah 53 yet? Cause man, that's some good stuff right there. Let me, did I tell you about that adventure I had back in Philippi? Man, I think they're gonna put this all in a book, but I'll give you a sneak preview. You know, Paul's like just excited over the moon. He's just got endless amounts of material to share with these Roman soldiers. And I think for a lot of them, they're like, you know, calling up, hey Bob, you wanna take my shift? Cause man, this guy's wearing me out right now. I don't know if I wanna go and I'm gonna get reassigned to somewhere else, but I think for a lot of them, I think this began to be the sweetest part of their week. As they began to say, there's something about this guy. Here he's in prison and he's filled with joy and he's sharing to us and he's ministering to us, He's, he's encouraging us. What causes a person to do that? And Paul is revealing that, man, there's many people that have been turned to the Lord. Because of my change, it's become evident that my chains, he says, are in Christ. And these Roman guards began to realize this isn't because Paul's breaking the law. This is something that God is doing. And God's in charge. And God's brought him here to further the gospel. And these Roman guards, I think, after a while began to go, Oh man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a double shift. Because six hours just wasn't enough with Paul. I want to have a little bit more time. and they're being pointed to Jesus. They're experiencing the blessings of the Lord. See, Paul, Paul's not concerned about his predicament. He's not concerned about how this might look on his image or this interrupting his goals. On the flip side, he's not sitting here going, man, this might really work to my advantage. Maybe when I get released, I can go on a big publicity tour share about, you know, life in prison as a martyr for Christ. Like, that's going to sell some books, I think. Paul's not looking at this in a selfish way. His only desire is to see Jesus promoted and the gospel go out. That's what he's living for. His concern was not for self, but for the things of God. You see, joy is all the more available when we take our focus off of self and we put it onto Jesus. And that's Paul's perspective here. It's what we're focusing on this very chapter. The the outline of our chapter is essentially, the secret of joy in spite of circumstances is the single mind. The single mind. What was Paul's singleness of mind? Paul's singleness of mind was saying, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. My whole life exists to glorify God. And whatever that meant, wherever that caused Paul to end up, Paul says, God, use this for your glory now. Because in whatever I endure, if it brings glory to you, that's to my joy and satisfaction, because that's what I live for. I live for the praise of God. I live for him to be magnified in and through my life. That's the singleness of mind that Paul carried. For Paul, all he cared about was the gospel going forth and Jesus Christ being magnified through his life. Mm -hmm. So Paul could look at his situation and go, wow, Lord, it's amazing. The gospel's advancing. I'm excited about that. If me ending up in prison caused the gospel to go up more and for people to come to know Jesus, it was all worth it. That's that singleness of mind that Paul has, and not only was Paul having a greater opportunity himself to share the gospel, but others were having a greater boldness now to share the gospel because of what Paul was enduring. Look at what we read in verse 14. He writes there, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. See, there were those that were witnessing all that Paul was going through, being in prison, being chained to a Roman guard, and they were becoming emboldened to share the gospel themselves. They're looking at this going, hey, if Paul can live that way and go through imprisonment, beatings, all these things, then why can't I? And in fact, some are being inspired by Paul to say, man, if he can go through this, then I wanna stand with him. I wanna support him. I wanna be one like him that goes out and shares the gospel all the more. They're getting inspired, they're getting encouraged to go and share their faith. If Paul would do it and face imprisonment, then they too wouldn't back down at the slightest of opposition. And that's the, uh, the great rally that the Lord may use your trial, may use your situation to encourage and help others. you know what that's like? When you see others doing stuff for the Lord, and you're like, man, why aren't I doing that? And why aren't I doing, what's stopping me from doing that? If they can do it, maybe I can't do. And that's what we're called in in Hebrews 10, verse 24, to do, to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, it says. That's that idea, stir up means to provoke to provoke, you start to encourage and challenge, but hey, you hear what I did last week? I went out into the park and shared the gospel. It's pretty awesome, eh? How about you? what did you, you do last week? Oh, I went to McDonald's, had a good burger, you know? And you're all suddenly going, man, that doesn't really amount to much, does it? Man, that's awesome you're out in the park sharing the gospel. And that kind of, kind of fires me up to do the same. We get to stir up one another to love and good works. And that's what Paul's life was doing right now starting to rally people to go and share the, their faith with others. I think we have a very real example, or a real time example of this very thing today as Christian leaders and pastors take a stand for Jesus in these days of, uh, of heightened restrictions and church shutdowns, right? I, I mean, I haven't enjoyed seeing our church going through the news, you know, and being dragged in the, in the media and kind of having this target on their back, and at times I've been like, Lord, why us? We were to be just under the radar. What happened with that? We just wanted to be quiet about it. But then I've heard from other pastors calling and just saying thank you for taking that that stand, and thank you for being bold. It's encouraged us to do the same. And we may have had that target, but it's allowed others to go, man, I wanna, I wanna follow suit in that. Not that we've tried to be some kind of uh, a leader in any of this, but to see the work of the Lord unfolding because of that. Through something that I maybe thought, was unfavorable, but to know what God is actually doing in and through that. And you think of, uh, of Pastor James Coates who gets put in prison because he wants to have his church open and open without any kind of, uh, of restrictions, open capacity, and to see this go around globally where people all, all around the world now are going, oh man, it's time to really mean business. I don't want to waste any more days. Like we saw, I mean, the Lord is coming back soon. I don't want to waste my time just sort of being comfortable. I want to to take a stand. If he can can sit here and leave his family and be put in jail because of his strong conviction to serve the Lord in that way, why can't I? And it encourages us and and as that's gone around the world, people all around the world have had a new sense of, and and I've heard from pastors and churches saying, man, when I saw what was happening there, it was right then that we decided we're opening up. Enough is enough. It's had this great effect. Had a great effect to the point where I, I've heard uh, of, of media and news now are being less inclined to report on this stuff in churches because as they report on it in the news, it's, it's causing more people to go, oh, there's a church that's open, I better check them out. Or other churches saying, hey, let's open up as well. Yeah, and the news is going, we better cut this a bit here because this isn't helping us, man. There's more that are opening up all around, and more are opening up now. This is, this is the idea. Paul says, even in my chains, is causing an effect in other people to be inspired and encouraged and emboldened now to live their faith for the Lord. See, what the enemy might think is to his gain, God turns it around and uses it for his good. We saw that in life of Joseph, when he said in Genesis 50 verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, what's remarkable, oh boy, is that Paul was watching people preaching the gospel with a heart being inspired and encouraged by him, but he also saw people preaching the gospel out of spite and with wrong motives. And you'd think, how can they do that? I think Paul would be getting his henchmen going, you gotta stop those people. They're taking advantage of the situation. They're not doing it with with a right heart. But, But notice what Paul says, whatever happens, it's happening for the gospel. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not serially, sincerely, supposing that affliction might change, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. He's looking at these people that are preaching with wrong motives, and yet he's not worried about it. Because whatever the motive might be, his singleness of mind is saying, Jesus is still being preached. The gospel is still going out. They might not be doing it with the right heart and motive but oh my goodness, they're still preaching Jesus. Paul says, and God can work through that. God can use that. It's not to excuse serving the Lord with the wrong motives. Oh, trust me, God wants our hearts to be right in service of the Lord. But even if there's motives that are wrong, it it, it will eventually catch up with you. God God will deal with that. That will be exposed one day. But yet, we understand that God Still able to work through that. You think of some of these charlatans on TV, these televangelists, and they're preaching up and they're they're just making a mockery of the gospel and they're and they're asking for money and all this stuff. And yet you hear about people that got saved, you're like, How'd that happen? Because God is God. And God can still work with It's, again, not to excuse that, it's not to say, so that's a good ministry, and it's not to say that. It's to say, man, God is so much greater than what we can ever think. And Paul's looking at the situation going, ah, you know what, I'm just gonna leave that to the Lord. I don't need to defend, I don't need to fight, I don't need to go against those people. The Lord will take care of it. And in the meantime, if they're preaching Christ, hey, praise the Lord, people are gonna get saved. That's what Paul is seeing here. That's what Paul is delighting and enjoying in. He says in verse 18, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For Paul, his life was all about Christ. For him it didn't matter who was doing what and what reasons people were doing the things that they're doing. He left those things to the Lord and as long as Christ was being preached and Christ was being glorified, Paul was good with that. Paul would find reason to joy in that. If it took being put in prison, for God to raise up more people to spread the gospel, even in pretense or in truth, Paul would rejoice. How can a person rejoice when you're sitting in a prison and people are, t- are taking advantage of you? You rejoice when you haven't made your life about you. When your focus is not on self. And instead you're living for the glory of God and desiring to see the name of Jesus Be highly exalted in and through you that's the very purpose that we've been created for we've been created to glorify God and when we live in that purpose where it is all about Christ you're going to encounter joy even in the midst of trials because you recognize that regardless of what you go through it's an opportunity for Jesus to see his work unfold and for him to be glorified in you regardless of what you go through God can take it God can use it and God can be greatly magnified in it. And if that's what you're living for, that singleness of mind to say, Jesus, be magnified in my life, then you can encounter joy whatever circumstance you're in. So rejoice, dear Christian, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this example that we see in this man, Paul, who lived with such a a singleness of mind to say, It's not about me, it's about Christ. It's about Christ being lived in me and through me and glorified by my life. Paul did that in such a way where it didn't matter what he went through, he could be joyful and rejoice. Because God, we know you're sovereign and in control and you're working out all things for your good. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have that singleness of mind, to stop living with a focus on self, but rather a heart that says, Jesus, let my life be used for you and your glory. And however you can more greatly accomplish, you be magnified in my life, then let it be so and let us rejoice in it. Lord, I pray that you would cause your love to abound yet more and more in our lives, and you'd allow us to walk in discernment and be filled today with the fruit of righteousness that comes simply by being connected to you, abiding in you. Lord, may we serve you faithfully, may we serve you with joy, and may you be exalted in our lives, we pray. Amen. And if you're here today maybe you're watching online or maybe you're here today and and maybe the gospel is something that is new to you and you don't know where you sit or where you stand with God today I want to give you some good news because that can all change in a moment to where you know and are assured that you are right with God you are not right with God by what you do you're not right with God by living a good life you're right with God by confessing your sin and your need for forgiveness and the great thing is, is that God sent his son Jesus to come in this world as one of us, took on humanity. Fully God, fully man. He died on a cross. In doing so, he paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. He died and he rose again, securing life for us. Defeated sin, death. He's given us that assurance of eternal life to those that believe in him. And to believe in him means you put your faith and your trust in him and not yourself. The Bible simply says that You need to confess your sin, you need to turn from it and put your trust in Jesus. And when you do, you become a born again, new creation. That's a free gift that God gives you, but you need to simply call out to Jesus. And if you haven't done that before and you're not assured of where you will go when you die, know that that can change right now by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Would you do that today? Pray a simple prayer saying, Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner, I'm in need of forgiveness. I turn from that and I put my trust in you. Come into my life, be my Lord and my Savior. Let me live for you now. Thank you for life. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. I give you my life now. And when you pray that, you become a child of God. It's all by his grace. Would you receive that today if you haven't? And if you have, come and share with us. Email the church, or if you're here, come and talk to me after I'd love to share more with you about that. All right, worship team, where are you? Come on up, worship team. We're gonna close with one song here. Let's stand together.